0: As a leader, I need to be self-aware of what energy I'm bringing to this conversation, to this meeting, to this initiative. And, And I need to make sure as much as possible that the wavelengths, the vibrations that I'm putting out there are going to be positively contagious.
1: My name is Steve Gilman. And for decades i've been helping brands engage with their audiences on this podcast we'll connect the dots in the fast-paced world of branding by talking with entrepreneurs leaders and marketers on the front lines of telling brand stories my guest today is Kedrin crosby kedron is the president of work wisdom a company that offers training coaching consulting services to organizations looking to enhance or improve workplace well-being they also produce a really great podcast called the Behaviorist. And Kedrin specializes in leadership, emotional intelligence, collaboration, culture, and strategy. Quite a few things we all need in business. She's also the author of Slowly, a recipe for the modern lifestyle, and has written extensively on burnout, work-life integration, authentic leadership, organizational culture, and communication best practices. Welcome, Kedrin.
0: Thank you so much, Steve.
1: Yeah, thanks for joining us today.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: I'm glad you could make the time. I know you're busy and you have a lot going on. Um, work Wisdom is a really unique company, and, and the more I've learned about you all, I really feel like you focus on uh, some really crucial things that so many companies need right now, especially in this day and age. Can you tell me a little bit more about Work Wisdom and how you got started?
0: Sure. Uh, work Wisdom is a little more than six years old. However, I've been doing this work since about 1996. So I, we didn't used to call it coaching yeah, right. um, back in the mid-90s. Um, I used to call it being helpful, um, but um, I have always really been interested in helping leaders become the best version of themselves. And so in the early days, I used to do that by conflict resolution and a lot of transformative mediation work in the nonprofit sector. Uh, And strategy, strategic planning. And so then um, over the decades, I've refined my methods. And uh, it was about 10 years ago that I became very focused on culture shaping. So I had run several organizations myself and realized the highest performing ones were those that had a really healthy, clear culture and fantastic communication. And so I said, well, if that's true, how do you make a great culture? And so went back to school a couple more times, you know, yeah, got more right. degrees and all those things, um, and then started trying to deliver those methods to world changers. So people who I believed were really actually making the world a better place and trying to bring them some concrete tools and techniques for making their organizations more successful, more powerful. And so, so that's, that's a little bit about how work wisdom came to be.
1: Yeah. Well, it's a really interesting company. I think what you do is, is obviously very complex because working, helping companies grow, you know, leaders grow, um, comes down to the individual leader and then each culture and each company has a unique situation and struggles they're going through. So we talk a good deal on this podcast about how culture is brand and how those are uniquely connected. I think I've heard you speak a few times um, in the various things I've seen seen that you've done, and on your podcast about what work culture, workplace culture, really is. You know, people don't define it that well, and I've heard you define it a few different times. Could you speak to that a little bit?
0: Yeah. So, I think the simplest way to think about what culture is is um, it's how we actually get things done. So it's not um, how we say we get things done, but how we actually get things done. So it's the sum of all of these beliefs and values and artifacts and our stories and our identity, which is so related to our brand, that's below the waterline, that's invisible, mostly. And so, so to really understand our culture, we have to deep sea dive underneath the waterline and find out, you know, what do we really believe? Um, We know what we say we believe because we have it painted on the lobby wall, right? So, but what's really under there? So um, I think that that is how I like to think about culture. It's the sum of all of those beliefs, everything that's under the waterline that's actually guiding our behavior that makes us decide, okay, we're going to go left here instead of right.
1: That's really interesting. I think a lot of companies, especially in the past, didn't want to talk about that. They wanted to talk about what was on the wall, the saying or the culture statement. They didn't want to talk about the reality yeah. of how people felt every day. And that's a really emotional conversation.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: that might, do you find that people are becoming more and more open to talking about that?
0: I do. I, honestly, I, I think the last um, 20 months has been jet fuel for people talking about their emotions in the workplace. And so some of the reason why that is true is because of the great resignation. So many people have decided they want to leave jobs that are not meaningful and that are not relational. Uh, McKinsey had a great study that came out last month and maybe you read it too, but basically people are leaving organizations that aren't flexible, that aren't relational, um, and they're moving towards organizations where they feel valued, where they can be whole people, and where they have a sense of belonging. So the only way you get to that is by talking about emotions. And so I think that's why so many people are open to thinking about culture in new ways, and very vulnerable ways.
1: That's great to hear. I mean, you know, we've we've always talked Uh, a good deal about how we feel here with gravity. And, you know, we do our best to have a culture where we're actually talking about everything, not just the, the slogans on the wall. But I just had a conversation on our last episode with uh, two brand strategists who were talking about the great resignation and, you know, everyone right now, I think talks like, Oh, it's this big thing that's just happening. And I think it's been coming for a long time. And, it's really about once people got away from how they were treated every day, they got to pause and think, wait a minute, I, maybe I'd like to be treated differently. Maybe I'd like to be able to actually have open conversations. So do you think that's a factor in, in the great resignation or the great reshuffling?
0: It's the largest factor. So 54% of people leaving their jobs have said it's because they don't feel valued. Wow and uh, fa- valued by the organization. I think it's 52% say um, they left their job because they didn't feel valued by their manager. And then it was in the 30s, 30 some percent said that they left their job because they didn't feel a sense of belonging. So, um, yeah, I think it has been coming for quite some time. I think as organizations became uh, maybe increasingly transactional, they became less and less relational. And um, so I think organizations are trying to get back to that. They're trying to understand how do I build trust? Um, what are the drivers of trust? How do I repair trust when it has been eroded? And learning those skills as part of being part of a team, that it's not just you know, a skill that you need to be a spouse, but you actually need it to be a teammate too.
1: Yeah, those are the same skills. You know, it's a very relational thing at work. Hopefully, you know, it shouldn't be transactional. And uh, it uh, it's always shocked me because I've worked internally at other organizations and I've worked in large ones and small ones, how it's just some of it's very golden rule. Like when you, you should treat other people the way you want to be treated. And I've just seen so many people, whether it's a lack of training or a lack of awareness, manage at people, you know, it's almost an act of, you know, <laughs> aggression or a, or a transaction of I'm going to manage you instead of I'm going to relate to you and figure out how, what, what helps you succeed.
0: Yeah. It's, it's the difference between management and leadership uh, supervision and coaching. So thinking about one directional versus bi-directional communication, some of it has to do with our, our stance and how we move through the world. So if you, do you all speak Enneagram?
1: No, we don't. I've always been curious about it.
0: We'll call it sometime. We'll talk about Enneagram. Yeah, we but, should. Yeah, certain people move through the world in in sort of I'm taking my will and I'm putting it out there, whereas others are more dependent stance. So there's this table that goes between the people. So some of it is just a little bit how we're wired sure. as well. We like to go one step further with the golden rule to the platinum rule Yeah, and, what's that? and think about... So it's um, rather than do unto others as they want uh, done unto them. Wait, no, I always get that mixed up. Do unto others, not as I want done unto me, but as you want done unto you.
1: Yeah, right.
0: So I need to figure out, well, how does Steve like his coffee? I'm not going to just give you coffee the way I like it, right? I need to kind of say, hey, what do you want? Why do you like it like that? And then, and then deliver that.
1: That's really interesting. I think it comes down to an awful lot of active, active actual, authentic listening and good communication. And, you know, my background um, was in theater and directing actors. So if you can't auth- authentically listen to another human being, you're in big trouble doing that. So I've always, you know, some of this, some of what you all do, I'm so glad there's someone out there doing it because there are so many companies that need that kind of help because they never learned it. I was lucky enough, you know, if you're going to learn how to direct actors, it's all about seeing the person genuinely. But if you don't get taught that and you go through some quick management training program in your company because you got promoted to manager, uh, how do you have these tools?
0: So true. Yeah. I think the mindful listening is probably the most important part of being a great leader um or a great director. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, actually and and it's isn't it strange we go through school we go through college we do public speaking classes never do mindful listening classes, so but yet that's what makes us great. So learning how to actively, authentically, mindfully listen to people, what's not being said, even you know all of that is really important.
1: Wow, well, that's I, I like that phrase. I hadn't I, I've never really heard the phrase mindful listening. But I hadn't thought about it from that point of view of like, yeah, there's public speaking classes, Mm -hmm. but there's never classes in how to listen to another human being yeah, and how to really authentically be there instead of being thinking about what you want to say or the goal you have or the thing you want to communicate. So
0: takes a lot of impulse control. Yeah, I bet it does. Not sort of zip into the witty thing I'm about to say, right? Right. Um, yeah, there's, there's a chapter in our book on authentic communication called mindful listening.
1: I'm going to have to read your book. I have not read your book. I've been all over your podcast and all over your website. And, uh, but I'll have to read your book. Um, because I just think, you know, if anyone out there that's listening, doesn't know work wisdom, you all need to know this company and what Kedron does, because I think they're adding an incredible amount of value and something we really need in today's workplace. Um, so I have a question: what do you think has made the biggest impact on you and your perspective as you've learned more and more about workplace culture?
0: So I'm sort of wired to try to reform things. And so the way that I think about the world is how to make it better, is sort of almost as a perfectionist. And so I think I've been particularly outraged by organizations or leaders that were not relational. That did not put enough um, weight on the culture of an organization, and and I saw um, the havoc that was <laughs> in that that was you know uh, just caused by by basically insufficient care in an organization. So I found that to be so. Uh, distressing that I think that's why I decided that I really needed to focus on it and, and find concrete, actionable ways to um, improve culture and improve relationships. But yeah, I, I think it's interesting. The, the way that I work is when I get angry enough about something, yeah. <laughs> I decide I got to fix this.
1: That's actually, that's actually pretty great. That was, that was a wonderful answer and I think a very honest answer. And what I love about that answer is that comes from so many entrepreneurs and people who start things and find out new ways to do things is a lot of times it comes out of frustration or anger at why does it have to be this way? And then, you know, someone taking the leap and having the passion to try to fix it. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So good for you, because that's what you've taken on to fix is a big deal.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anger is a motivating emotion.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is. Anger, frustration. Same reason we have our agency is, you know, I've been in other agencies. I didn't like how they were run. So I started this one. And, you know, I was young enough when I did it that I didn't believe anyone that told me how hard it was going to be. But, uh, you know, it's our 27th year. We've been here a while. So we've, we've figured out a few things. And it's, you know, I think wanting to change something and not have it be inhumane. Because, you know, the agency world is very inhumane to workers usually. And that's something that I was just like, I can't. People shouldn't live this way. Yeah. You know? So,
0: life is too short, it isn't is. it? So, especially yeah.
1: not to enjoy the people you work with and not to have real conversations and be able to relate. You know, it's a very human thing work.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I absolutely love your staff bios oh, on your website. And they're so whole person. And I could tell just by how they were written and the fact that those were the ones that got put on the website. You're an organization that cares about all the parts of someone's life. And that that is really meaningful. I'm sure it makes your staff feel more engaged as well.
1: Well, I hope so. I mean, we, we love them and they're just great people and they're interesting and they're quirky and everyone's got their own unique thing. And one of our newer employees had her Husky running around here earlier today, and it was just a blast to see the dog be so happy. And, you know, just, I love stuff like that.
0: Yeah, me too.
1: You talked on your podcast, The Behaviors, you talked a little bit about something that I'd be curious to hear more about, about work-life integration. And I think that's really a very current thing that's going on right now, people trying to figure out what that means. And I think people often, you know, you get into that old cliche of work-life balance, mm-hmm. which I'm not even sure what that is. But I've heard you talk about work-life integration a little bit. Can you, can you tell us a little more about that idea?
0: sure yeah um i was i was probably it was probably the early 2000s and i had a blackberry you know the kind it would vibrate and I was at Walden Pond and I was trying to have this transcendental moment and my BlackBerry kept on vibrating and I was like ready to chuck it in. And and that was the moment where I, I figured, you know, that work-life balance wasn't working anymore. You couldn't just segment your work life over here and your other life over here that I needed. Now that technology was everywhere, I needed to learn how to integrate the two and stay sane. So um, so that's when I started sort of using that phrase of work-life integration and trying to find healthy practices so that I could weave all the parts of my life together so that I could have joy and achievement. And um, what I found worked was really creating this purpose on the planet. So, thinking about this overarching purpose. Why am I here? What am I supposed to be accomplishing? Getting really clear on that and then thinking, okay, I'm going to take whatever I do for money and make sure it's molding up into that. Yeah, right. I guess that's a job. Sometimes I don't know. As yeah. an entrepreneur, maybe some years it's not. Yeah. Um, and taking you know, whatever I write, taking how I raise my children, taking what I do for volunteer work um, and making sure that it's all fulfilling that one purpose. And then it started feeling like a braid and that I was just weaving these pieces together in in service of this purpose. And so um, I just was able to feel more meaning and joy. And I was less uh, resentful if I was Doing work at 7 p.m. because I might also be unloading the dishwasher at 10 a.m. and just like it was all just kind of working together in service of the same thing. So, um, so yeah, that podcast with Dr. McCray from University of Florida, she had some great tips too on how she's weaving it all together. And I think a lot of people are finding new ways. I don't have all the answers, but um, I think what we need to do is. Give ourselves some some grace that we're all trying to figure it out, and um, and change how we do work to recognize maybe you need to take a run in the middle of the day. So, and that's okay, you know. Uh, if it's okay, then that's okay.
1: It should be okay.
0: Yeah, we just want to keep you flourishing. And your workplace wants to keep you flourishing. Your home life wants to keep you flourishing. So, what do we need to do in order to make that happen?
1: Yeah, I'm glad that's something you all talk about because I think a lot of companies need it. There are still a lot of companies that are very old school about the nine to five and making sure you're at work or at your desk. Or, and I think you know that the change has been thrust on everyone with the pandemic, of course, to try to figure this out. And the, even my experience. Um, You know, I've always been someone that didn't like a traditional work schedule. And, you know, there were times certainly in the past that I felt like that wasn't something I should talk about or be completely comfortable with even within myself. And as soon as I got to the point where I embraced it and just went, no, this is how I work best, that it just works for me. So, you know, during the day I take like fairly decent nature walks every chance I get like, even if it's just in a park that's right down the street, because I can think better if I do that. So I think everyone realizing, and that, that thing you said about the dishwasher, I think, is is so true for entrepreneurs. It's almost like if you fight that, you know, if you're really resentful of the moment you have to look at your phone, because something's happening at work and you're trying to unload the dishwasher and these two things are in competition, it gets much more difficult. It creates a lot of stress that doesn't need to be there.
0: I think that's really well put, yeah. And I think that 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 nature walk should be encouraged if it helps you be the best version of yourself. So you come back from your nature walk, you get on a call with a client, you're curious and open and creative and all of those wonderful things. I would want you on nature walks four times a day, you know? Let's get Steve to that place. Just keep Um, him walking around. Keep him outside. Yeah, keep him
1: outside. Just stay outside. I actually like to do conference calls when I walk around because I just think better. Um, So how do you think, obviously there's been a lot of change in workplaces since, you know, in this new pandemic age in the last 18 to 24 months. So what have you seen, you know, the people that you help and the companies that you help, what have you seen are the biggest struggles? What are people really having a hard time with?
0: Well, I would say what was most surprising at the beginning of the pandemic is conflict evaporated. So yeah. we used to do a lot of work around conflict resolution and organizational conflict and and co-leadership work where there was tension between leaders. And with by April, there was nothing like that. So that was really interesting that um, moving to remote work, uh, facilitated the kind of pause practice so that people were able to manage their emotions, um, be thoughtful about their responses, and and manage conflict. So that, I think, is curious about something good that happened. Um, I think what we saw was um, a need to put our attention on a different kind of distance. So, we talk about affinity distance is the 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 distance between um, people in terms of relationship, how much trust we have, um, how much I can depend on you. And so it used to be that we focused on physical distance in the workplace, and now we put our attention on affinity distance. How much do we have interdependence? How much do we have trust between each other? So... It's a shifting of attention. And then the skills that go with that in terms of how do we collaborate? How do I repair trust? How I, do I foster trust with you? Um, even if you live in Florida, like like my vice president does, right. you know, um, and I'm in Pennsylvania. So that, I think that's something that we've we've noticed. There's also a huge shift in how the built environment functions. Sure. Um, so because most of our clients are hybrid, now. And, um, what do we do with 5,000 square feet? <laughs> yeah. We're I don't know. With all
1: this room. Yeah.
0: Roller skate. Yeah. I don't know. Um, so, so trying to make the built environment a more like a community center, yeah. <laughs> a hub, <laughs> yeah. a cool place to yeah. come hang out like a coffee shop. Like, Oh, maybe I'll go into the office because I want to kick around some ideas or, or just, talk to someone that's not my dog or my yeah, kid. Right. So, um, so so, so uh, we have a, a service line called Work Wisdom Design that we I have just recently launched. So it's a lot of, okay, let's get rid of these desks. You know, let's put in some couches and coffee tables and get, you know, a hangout zone where we can make it collaborative. Um, we have ideation there. Um, it's where we find connection and belonging yeah. and we maybe focus on culture there, but it's not where we do our work. That's at home.
1: That's really interesting. And I love what you said about affinity distance. You know, I think I've been working on that for a couple of years and I had no idea what it was called. And that's a really great term.
0: Yeah, there, there are three kinds of distances.
1: Oh, yeah. Please tell me.
0: Yeah, so the first kind of distance is physical distance, and that's what we used to focus on. Then the second kind is operational distance. So that is more like on an organizational chart, you know, how far is the president from the admin? And then the third is affinity distance. So without a doubt, in, in the remote environment, affinity is what most people are trying to work on.
1: Yeah. That's really interesting because we, you know, everyone's had a different experience with the pandemic and and I love that you're helping people figure out how to make their physical space more useful in this new reality. I think a lot of people need help with that and we're still experimenting with it. But one of the things that I was surprised by, but not like blown away by, because I kind of suspected it, we always had some remote work. As soon as we were all remote and I think we started to work more intentionally on the affinity distance... You know, because our trust was pretty high and it just had to go through the roof, that uh, I saw people just step up, take on responsibilities that no one asked them to, perform at incredibly high levels, and it made me realize, well, this is permanent now. So what we did in our company is make it to where it's your choice. You can come and work at the office if you want, or you can work at home. Whatever's actually fits your life better right now, if you want to change it three weeks from now, good for you. You know, do what you need to do because it seems to work really well.
0: And I love that you're holding it loosely like, well, right now, this is what we think. But we don't know three months from now. We'll, we'll talk then and we'll listen to each other then. And then we'll make a better choice then if we need to. So, yeah, that's great. Um, yeah, I love also that you're saying how people stepped up. So I, I have also seen that, too, that people have felt empowered. Like there's a, I get to move forward and I get to raise my hand and I get to try new things. So enthusiasm and empowerment have been, you know, uh, unexpected positive consequences of all of this, I think.
1: Yeah, I think people feel what I've noticed is people feel if they're allowed to, you know, because I have friends in other companies that they aren't having this experience but if they're allowed to they they get to form a more entrepreneurial view on what they do and own it a little bit more you know and that phrase can either be positive or negative but when you get to say hey i think we should do this differently or hey i like it this way you know it might not always turn out that way but it's nice if you you know you probably know more about what you do than anyone else does especially the people that Supposedly, supervise you, <laughs> you know. So, I think it's just been an amazing experience, as crazy as it's been. You know, I feel like it's been a, quite a learning experience for everyone.
0: Yeah, it really has. Yeah. It's like a doctorate, and I don't know, a <laughs> doctorate. Chaos. Yeah, I know. yeah,
1: yeah, it's crazy. So, you all, I noticed that you all um, are a certified B corporation, and yeah. it seems like it's been really important to you all. Can you tell me a little bit about that?
0: Yeah, it's important to us. Uh, so uh, being a B Corporation just means that you are a for-profit organization that cares about people and the planet as well as profit. So, um, so it means you go through this very rigorous testing and audit in order to ensure that um, you you're treating people with, uh, fairness and, uh, your, your impact on the planet is minimal. Um, it's been important to us mostly internally, I think mostly for the staff. Yeah. I, I mean, although we have definitely had people hire us, a lot of foundations seem to think it's, it's great that we are a B corporation, but not too many other people even know what that means. We work a lot in the environmental space with some environmental organizations. They know what it means and they think it's great. But I think it's more um, internally, it excites our team and makes our team feel like our work is really meaningful. So it's for us more than anybody.
1: Good for you. And I love how proud you all seem of it. I think it's a great thing to do and you know, if you work in the environmental space, and I think you have a lot of nonprofit experience as well.
0: So, I do. Yeah. yeah, so
1: that makes a lot of sense because it is almost like the the nonprofit way to be a for profit.
0: Exactly, it really is. You know, the sectors are all kind of merging together. You know, the nonprofits, the nonprofits have uh, social enterprises now, and then the, you know the for profits are doing so much socially responsible work that it's getting a little murky in there.
1: It is. So you have you have just decades of experience working in different sectors. I noticed that you've worked in nonprofits, you've worked with government, you've worked in for-profits. Do you think there's any particular industry or sector that needs more work around like employee well-being and culture and that kind of thing
0: wow i might make some enemies yeah well
1: if you yeah. if you want to skip this question i totally yeah. understand i was just more curious
0: yeah i do i do think this is true so there's something called the edelman trust barometer and so every year they measure trust in all the sectors um and actually government is probably the one that needs the most help
1: i would imagine that
0: yeah, empowered, um, healthy cultures. Um, very often, not not every part of government, but it's it's hierarchical in a sort of control sort of way that doesn't really always foster people being the best version of themselves. And so, um, I would say, in terms of the three sectors, that would be the one that has has them growing to
1: do. Yeah. Well, that makes a lot of sense because their leadership changes for different reasons. Mm -hmm. They're, you know, a lot of the things they have to operate, operate by regulations aren't to their choice. They just are. And so I think, you know, if you work with government sectors, then I think that's great because they probably do need a lot of help because it's not really the, it's not really at the center of the culture of a lot of government agencies because it's just structured differently than a, Certainly than a uh, for-profit, non-profit, because that's a very, usually a very human, starts with a very human idea. And even for-profits, I think it's easier to make your own rules and customize them to, you know, wanting to think about employee well-being or culture.
0: Yeah, it's really, um, their culture is really driven by precision and making sure that everything is right. So that can mean things go slowly um, and and then the the people side of it um is not the priority
1: yeah i mean i can see how that would make you that could make you feel like a cog in a larger machine or be very difficult to feel like you could make individual decisions because the structure is is what it is so yeah hard jobs
0: yeah they are hard hard jobs and um i think universally though it comes down to the leadership so it could be government but if there's an incredible leader uh, over in that government, um, entity, uh, people can still feel belonging and that they're flourishing and that their strengths are being tapped into. So I've seen really beautiful work in the government sector, but universally, I would say that's the one.
1: Yeah. Well, a lot of times it does just come down to individual leaders and and vision and, and communication style and all those things. Um, so I saw a, a quote that I think was on your LinkedIn profile, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit what it means to you. It's a Peter Drucker quote, and the quote's, your first and foremost job as a leader is to take charge of your own energy and then help orchestrate the energy of those around you. So I, I really love that quote. What does that mean to you?
0: I just love Peter Drucker. I just I, I just do. Um, that is so powerful to me. To me that is a a beautiful, um, articulation of emotional contagion. And so it's this idea that as a leader, I need to be self-aware of what energy I'm bringing to this conversation, to this meeting, to this initiative. And, and I need to make sure as much as possible that the wavelengths, the vibrations that I'm putting out there are going to be positively contagious. So I need to manage my energy, I need to be aware of it, and then I need to manage it. And so for me, if that means I'm being fiery about something, um, that I go for my walk in the woods, and then I come back, and I've got great ideas. And I, you know, I'm I'm energetically, you know, contagious in all the best ways, so people are catching my dreams and my inspiration,
1: and not too much of the fire.
0: Yeah, yeah, me and my fire, and <laughs> her Scottishness, but um, yeah, I think that I think that it's something that's so important, and um, we we talk about resonant leadership. In the world of emotional intelligence, so understanding how our res- how do we resonate?
1: Yeah,
0: you know, like like those water glasses. Yeah. you know, or do we are we dissonant? And so, um, thinking about what it is that we do to renew, so that we engage in hope, that we engage in compassion, so that we are continuously resonating, and our teams catch it, and then well. they resonate. And then everybody's humming.
1: That's really cool. I love the, I lo- you know, a lot of the terms you use and the way that you explain them, I think, is, you know, it's something that I think people connect with right away. Because whether we're a coworker or a leader, you really can't picture whether you're resonating or whether you're being dissonant. I mean, I can think of days when I've resonated and days that I've been pretty dissonant. So that's a really, that's a great way to look at it. Um, you know, I think that's the job of every leader is to try to resonate and not just you know, be a mess all over everyone. (laughs) That's
0: right. Cause we're, we're actually more contagious than people who are not, uh, in power. So the the more, uh, sort of the higher up you are in a hierarchy, the greater weight your contagion has. You got to do your hand-washing, your emotional hand-washing.
1: Yeah. And I think that like, you know, obviously, you know, the higher up or the more of a leader you are, you're, you're more contagious. But I find that that's employee to employee, employees to leaders, any member of the team, you know, that, that sort of emotional energy that people put off can be really powerful. You know, if you care about each other and someone's angry, you can feel it. Or if they're sad, you can feel it. And, you know, I, I, one of the things of the pandemic is, I think people are a little bit more comfortable talking about how they feel at work than they used to be. And so are you finding that, that more and more of your of the clients you work with are trying to be more comfortable with that?
0: Yeah, I think it's definitely true. Yeah, and because there's been so much grief, yeah, people are open to talking about that, and there's been so much burnout. Um, people are talking about well-being. And so um, in order to really mitigate burnout, we need to be able to talk about what burnout really is. Burnout is not really just – a deficiency of self-care. It's not like, oh, I didn't get enough massages this week. It's not that, it's it's emotional exhaustion, it's cynicism and it's professional um, efficacy that we feel like we're putting in this much effort but we're not moving the needle. So that's really what burnout is. So yeah, people are definitely talking about emotions a lot more. We have feelings wheels all over the place, so at you know. work wisdom. In fact, I gotta show you Yeah, this. let me
1: see.
0: I hope it's okay. Oh,
1: absolutely. This,
0: this is a, a pillow, a wow. floor pillow, that's the feelings wheel, yeah. if you know what the feelings wheel is. But we have couch, couch pillows with them too. So people, you know, especially people who are a little new to emotional awareness, it helps them identify which feeling am I feeling right now and and then how do I use that?
1: I'm definitely going out and get a feeling wheel pillow right away to put in our office. So that, you know, that brings me back to something I wanted to ask you about in 2008, you wrote a book um, entitled slowly about how to rebound from burnout. And then recently you re-released it. So what the reason you re-released it, I'm assuming was the pandemic and how many people are dealing with this now.
0: Yeah. So many people were asking us, um, and this was really January, February, so we hadn't really gone back yet. But a lot of our clients were saying, we don't want to go back to the frenzy. We're afraid when we go back that we're going to jump on that hamster wheel again. And it's just going to be total frenzy, um, just like it was before. And we weren't happy then. And we kind of like the the new pace um and so so yeah the team here decided it was time to just re-release it and so really the only thing that changed was the cover but um but it was slowly is a method for work-life integration and the positive no deciding what you're not going to do so that you can be more intentional on what you do want to do Um, Yeah, so it was the pandemic that we thought that that would be helpful, and it turns out it was. A lot of people have been glad to read that.
1: I ordered a copy, and I'm really looking forward to reading it, and we'll put a link on on our landing page for your episode on our site for this, and I encourage everyone. It's on Amazon. You can go find it, or you can go to the Work Wisdom site and see this book are there any takeaways like quick takeaways or any any advice you give people right now that are watching or, or listening to this and saying yeah I feel a little burned out what can I do right now
0: I think it's about communication back to your point you know I think so much of it about is about communication so Burnout. the The clinical burnout is really about emotional exhaustion. It's not overwork necessarily. You know, you could probably work ninety hours and not burn out if you feel it's meaningful. Yeah. So, so thinking about is this emotionally uh, exhausting to me, and why um, do I have a sense of cynicism and lack of enthusiasm, and why? And then also this idea of, do I feel like I'm not moving the needle? Like i put in this much work, but I'm not really getting anywhere. So I think once you've self-diagnosed, then you can start to talk to your coworkers, your boss, um, and say, you know, I think we've got a culture issue here. I believe that burnout is not an individual issue. I think it's an organizational issue. And so what do we need to do organizationally so we create meaning? So people have lack, uh, they they don't have that cynicism anymore because they believe in the meaning of it, Um, where we're creating practices where people don't become emotionally exhausted, but they're able to get renewed so that they are refreshed. Uh, it's really not as many hours. And then also, what's going on that we are putting an effort, but we're not making the needle move? Or what's happening systematically that it's like we're swimming through molasses? Yeah,
1: and never getting ahead.
0: Yeah. yeah,, so, um, so I think it then becomes courageous conversations about, uh, but but that's hard to do when we're so wiped out. Um, so it it takes, It takes some effort, but trying to diagnose it and then having some courageous conversations, I think is part of the way forward.
1: That's great. That's great advice. And and I'm sure there's a ton more in your book slowly. So I'll I'll enjoy reading it. And I hope other people read it too, because I think everyone, everyone I've talked to and everyone I know right now going back to work after, you know, being completely at home and now trying to integrate into a hybrid environment. I think that along with the reframing of work that everyone's been through, that I think it's easier for people to feel burned out systemically right now than ever before because the systems are all blown up. That's a lot for everybody. It
0: is a lot. I also think there's this ripple effect with the great resignation. You know, if 40% of people have actually left or are about to leave, that means there are so many open spots on teams right now. So that, you know, when you call the bank, I don't know. I, yeah, who right. are you talking to? I don't know. I mean, it might be the president of the bank who's yeah, like, Who knows who's answering the phone? Yeah. Yeah. So I think that there's just a lot of glitchiness because of the resigna- great resignation yeah, too.
1: Sure. And hopefully it'll all settle down and get more people in the right spots and people feeling better about what they do. So what do you think is a common myth that you hear from organizations or work with organizations on about culture or
0: employee well being? <laughs> This one always makes me laugh, um, but it's about fun. Yeah, right. you know, so I was talking to someone yesterday and they said, well, we do have a director of fun. Neat. And I was like, what does that even? So you've got a ping pong table that has nothing to do with culture. Right. I mean, I guess there's this sort of dot com idea that if we get a foosball table, we'll have a good culture. But that is not really the way it works. So that that is the myth a ping pong table will not.
1: And some beanbag chairs, and we're done. No, we fixed it's not it. not gonna
0: work. Yeah, <laughs> done and done. Done and we're done. done with check already. and check. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So great. that
0: I would say that's the one. It's yeah. not about happy hours, and you
1: know. It sure isn't. Yeah, it's sure about a lot more than that.
0: Yeah.
1: So you know, you've you've come a long way, and you do really important work, um, and I think you help a lot of other people um, try to get through things that are really difficult and learn things that are really hard. As you were doing this and getting to where you are now, what piece of advice were you given that's really stuck with you?
0: Well, it's it's sort of uh, it was a quote that came from a Harvard Business School professor that I screwed up in my mind and told myself so many times that I thought it was her advice and then when I went back to look, I had just messed up with her quote. That's cool. So, yeah, it's embarrassing. But so I I, it's uh, I forget her name's Rosabeth. I can find the quote for you if you want. But the version that I told myself was that um, every success looks like a failure in the middle. But that's not what she said. Right. But that's what I thought she said. So I told myself that for many years. And then I learned that that was not what she said. So but that, I think, is the advice that has helped me. Um, for many years is this idea that every success, it just looks like a failure in the middle. So if you're just looking in the middle, it's like, oh, this feels like we're failing. And but it's just the middle. And so you just have to keep going to get to the other side and then it becomes a success.
1: I love that. Like, you know, I, I think everyone has done that where we hear a quote or we remember something, but sometimes the twist we put on it, it makes it perfect for us or perfect for I honestly like I think I'll remember your version of it now because I really like that.
0: Yeah. Hers was good, but the messed up version has served <laughs> me well. Yeah.
1: That's great. So what's one one book or article or or you know, a must read for people who are interested in, you know, either culture or employee well-being? What do you think people should start looking at? If, you know, one besides calling you all, what should they do?
0: Yeah. You know, I got to say there's so many books I love. Um, everybody on our team is pretty obsessed with No Rules Rules, um, which is by Reed Hastings about culture shaping um, at Netflix. So that that is one that has really influenced us quite a bit. Um, Nine Lies About Work by Marcus Buckingham and Ashley Goodall. Is my favorite, and I love it. it is an audio book, Audible, um, because they're both British and they're really funny. And I've I can't even tell you how many times I've listened to that book while I'm painting a room or walking. Nine Lies About Work. About work. That would be the one that I would say
1: buy that one. Yeah. We'll, uh, we'll link to that on your page. Um, I've heard of that book. So now it makes me want to read it anymore, even more. Um, so this is a question I always ask people, what, you know, you're, you're interacting with, with people going through different levels of change and you're, you're helping them and giving advice, but what's something that you think you've learned this week or recently?
0: Well, I think today, this morning, uh, my lesson learned was, um, to embrace flexibility, so embracing flexibility actually helps with stress, and if you do it the right way. So that that was a lesson that I learned about two hours ago, and uh, I'm still working on it. Um, really? But yeah, I I you know in trying to empower others, learning how to um, give them really clear tight ends. But loose means, you know, I'll step back from the means, and they know what they're doing, and I can be flexible, and that helps me with stress, but um, them to grow. And so I think, I think that's something that I've been learning today.
1: <laughs> that's great. I love when people ask what the answer was something that they've learned today. Yeah, yeah. I think we all learn all the time, so yeah. it's pretty amazing. Um, so this is our last question. And I always end on this question. Uh, If you could tell uh, your younger self something or give your younger self some advice, what would it be?
0: It sounds like a cliche, but trust your instincts. You know, trust your gut. You're probably right. Um, And maybe YOLO, right? You only live once. So just do it. Um, So I think trust your gut and um, YOLO.
1: That's great. That's I think that's great advice for everyone and especially, you know, entrepreneurs and people who have built things because there can be so much second guessing as you move through trying to build anything. So, you know, sometimes you do just have to trust your gut and keep going. So that's great. I just want to thank the audience for listening in and Kedron, you've just been amazing to talk to. I think the work you all do and Everything you have to say has just been brilliant. It's been so nice to listen to you today.
0: I enjoyed it too, Steve. Good luck to you. And I'm really going to continue enjoying absorbing your group um, and all their creativity. So yeah, it's it's good to know you're out there.
1: Everyone, please go to the Work Wisdom site and check out what this amazing organization does.